you know, I remember that kind of some of the specific auditory hallucinations I had, you know, um, were, it was, it, it go, it almost ties back to those very first, um, social anxieties that I, that drinking helped with. I was kind of, um, hearing, um, people I knew talking about what I'd done the night before when I was drunk, you know, hallucinating that. Um, and so, you know, there, there is definitely a theme there of, um, being overly concerned with what others think of one using alcohol to dim that in the moment. But then in this kind of horrible irony that from like a Russian novel or something, having the alcohol come back and bring those very fears that you were trying to tamp down uh, to the fore, even when not grounded in reality. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast for those who look to be inspired by individuals who have turned their lives around, be it from the depths of addiction, trauma, physical and mental health issues, and found a way to live a purposeful life. Because that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. Your host and sober coach, Jason Lachance here, and I'm excited for this conversation because my guest and I, we have some different perspectives on things, but I really wanted to hear out what he is doing with his company, or help. Jonathan Hunt Glassman is my guest, helping those who are drinking more than they would like or who want to quit altogether. And Jonathan's approach through Or Health is through medication. And although I may not totally agree with each and every approach, as I'm a big person who supports abstinence-based recovery, I am most certainly supportive of medication-assisted treatment for a short period of time. Jonathan and I have an amazing conversation. He's a really great guy. We have some laughs in here, share some stories about where our drinking led us to some very negative places and what we've done in the aftermath and how he developed or health. So please hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. If it's Apple podcast, subscribe, leave a rating and a review. And on Spotify, please leave a five-star rating for knocking doors down. And if you're getting value out of knocking doors down, please do me a favor, share with someone else. Here's my guest, Jonathan Hunt Glassman. Jonathan Hunt Glassman, thank you for joining me on Knocking Doors Down. Great to be with you. Yeah, uh, I'm excited to get into it. Of course, you're the co-founder of Aura Health. We're going to dig into what that is, how it's helping people uh, struggling with alcoholism for more accessibility to resources and medication and all these things that, uh, hey, I'm glad it's out there now. Uh, But I like to start with gratitude or appreciation, however you want to look at it. Uh, Three things you're grateful for today. Well, grateful to be in good health, grateful uh, to the topic we're going to talk about, to have been able to take back control of alcohol and grateful to, especially this time of year, to be uh, surrounded by loving and supportive family, both my wife and then broader family of parents and siblings. Yeah, no, it is. uh, We are really fortunate, aren't we, in that way? Yeah, it's and it's a great I appreciate you're asking the question because it is not some of us are very intentional about uh, keeping a gratitude journal or something like that. Others of us kind of need prompting like you just gave me uh, to take stock of the the many blessings that, that we have. I'm sure you have a lot in your life. too. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, it's I just find that if I don't focus on being appreciative, uh, uh, 
and even of things that have yet to fully come to fruition or for me to understand, you know, I mean, sounds like you can relate. It, it, my last spiritual awakening, I was just having a conversation with someone about this earlier, ironically, um, was it all of a sudden hit me that all the disempowering decisions I made can be used to help other people. And so, you know, that took a lot of 42 years of living to land at that moment. So sometimes we can be really impatient on appreciating a situation that'll come our way, especially if at first it's like, you know, God's against me, life is terrible, you know, all the things that we tend to say. Totally. I, I'm I'm about your age. Uh, and uh, maybe it starts to come a little bit as we, we get towards the middle of our lives, kind of being able to look back and uh, reframe some of those things that I certainly would have done differently. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying uh, I would have made all the same missteps, but seeing the ways in which they are uh, learning opportunities for ourselves as we go forward. Hopefully we've got just as much ahead of us as behind us. Um, but then also, you know, things that we can, we can share with others. Um, I think that's probably one of the biggest strengths of the recovery community is that appreciation of what those who've walked before us can share. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, you know, you taught, you said a, a key word that stuck out to me, those missteps. Did you, I've, I've had a couple of people that I coach in, in uh, you know, kind of recovery coaching work. And I try to work with them to reframe um, regrets to remorse. And what, is that, what does that distinction mean to you? So for me, when I say it, it's like, yeah, I have actions that at one time I regretted making, but now I'm just remorseful that I hurt someone through it or, uh, you know, someone's multiple people, however it is, but I don't sit in the regret part anymore because I've taken it and used it for something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that resonates. Um, yeah. There are certainly, you know, when I probably don't have to tell you when we, you know, misuse alcohol or other substances, um, we don't just hurt ourselves. We hurt those around us. And I know that I did things that were hurtful to the family, the friends, the romantic partners who cared the most about me. And, you know, there's, I don't think there'll ever be a day when I don't have some form of regret or remorse about that. I think that would require kind of a, a lack of conscience. Uh, but it is different to be able to say, you know, that was in the past. I can't change it, but I can learn from it and perhaps apply those those lessons in ways that help others um, not wait as long to, to start getting better. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I think that's part of because, you know, you're a personality, you know, this term that's come around more lately, recovering out loud. Um, I like that. Yeah. First, did you get any kind of pushback at any point? I kind of have. I'm in a bit of a smaller community, um, but that that's since gone away. And I, yeah, go I ahead. Most of my pushback was from myself. Really? Um, you know, yeah. Um, I think I'm kind of by nature pretty uh, conscious of and maybe a little overly conscious of how much I'm disclosing about myself um, to the world. So when I found myself in this situation of having benefited so much from safe, effective medication that helped me drink a lot less 
and wanting to help others do that, um, it, there was a question mark in my mind of how comfortable am I going to be um, laying it all out there, uh, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and it's only kind of by doing it, I think, that I got comfortable with it. And only by having done it that I taught myself that a lot of those fears of what are others going to think, what's their judgment going to be, were kind of more in my own mind. Um, I didn't get a lot of external um, pushback. And, you know, someone once asked me when I kind of like, you know, told people the story where there are people who knew me who were surprised that I'd been struggling with alcohol. Not really. It was pretty obvious to them. So <laughs> I got I got good feedback on uh, having taken steps to address this problem that had been kind of obvious. <laughs> oh, Jonathan, thank God. <laughs> we're glad you recognize <laughs> it now. I, it's same. I And at the end of the day, those were the people that cared about me then and still care about me now. And it's not that I haven't had other people come into my life because I have. I've been very blessed in that way. But uh, but yeah, a lot of those people that had something to say, they kind of just went away. Any, it's, it was weird. They had something to say. But then when I got sober, they went away anyways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, I, I think the people who really, you know, love you, um, by goodness, if they've stuck by you through as difficult as it can be loving a, you know, a person struggling with addiction, they're probably in it for the long haul. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind kind of opening up or, or sharing maybe, you know, most of us in recovery, we definitely do some retracing the steps so to speak and what for you really kind of i hate the term gateway but but i mean was it a big t little t trauma was it environment was it a combination you know family history of alcoholism a little bit of all of the above mm -hmm. i struggled with alcohol misuse from the day i started drinking oh. uh, and that was in the context of high school and college parties where alcohol and excessive alcohol use were certainly within the norm. But even within that environment, I liked it more. I relied on it more. I had more problems with it. I think the roots for me were probably in anxiety and in particular social anxiety and alcohol doing a really effective job of masking that, of kind of inducing feelings of uh, euphoria, connection to others, lower inhibitions. It kind of fit like a lock into a, a key relative to some of my vulnerabilities, insecurities at that age in my life. Yeah. Now, everything you said lands with me 100%. And I, I, I pissed an old timer off. This is probably two months ago. And, uh, and it was in an open meeting. I'm like, well, alcohol's miraculous. And these kind of people look, I'm like, it, it is like the best anxiety drug that is out there. Like, I didn't even know I had anxiety until I quit drinking, you know? And it was like, I can't even go to work today. I got to be around, you know? Uh, and they kind of, you know, at first they're sitting there staring at me. And one guy took me, you made it sound like it's encouraging. I'm like, no, you missed the back end where I say, well, then our brain gets stuck in that loop and it gets worse. And we're in, you know, thus alcoholism, chemical dependency, however you view it. And, uh, but yeah, it's a miraculous thing to to take that away. It's kind of like, you know, somebody went, well, no, it makes you do stupid things. I went, no, 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 no. That girl that I wanted to go home with, that I ended up going home with, I already wanted to do that. I just had anxiety about it. 
the consequences didn't seem to set in anymore. Yeah, totally. I, I, I think that's, I think if we kind of want to, you know, help everyone who's struggling with, with alcohol, find their path, we've got to be honest. And, uh, the, the truth is that alcohol can be seductive in that the benefits are benefits and quotes <laughs> are immediate and, and feel good. And it takes a while to recognize the the consequences, especially if we're seduced by how how great those immediate benefits are. Yeah, yeah, it, it truly is. It's that uh, what's the comparison? I, I don't remember if I made somebody. You know, it's you look at a skyscraper and you go, "Wow, all the time and energy and everything and the design and man hours to put in to build it." But then when you go to destroy it, it's pretty quick. And for me, alcoholism was kind of that way. It was like, here I was thinking I was going up to the penthouse. No, no, no. I was telling them where to set the bombs when we destroy this thing. It just took a while to get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, how did, when did you notice that, um, that you were headed down in the elevator, not up, so to speak? Knocking Doors Down by Carlos Vieira. Now available wherever you get audiobooks. I wasn't done partying and I didn't want the binge to end. I think I knew that when I finally got home, I'd have to face what I had done, and I wasn't ready to do that. Being responsible for my actions wasn't something I was looking forward to. I had abandoned my wife and baby, my family, and my business. I wanted to avoid the shame of returning to what I had left behind. Even though I was not yet going home, I wasn't sure I had enough resources to continue the binge. Click the link in the podcast description to find out more. God, there was a multitude of things. I would say the real one would be I, and it was a knee-jerk decision. I tried to take my life in a car and and I completely uh, failed. Uh, I laugh about it now because I'm here. So, you know, it is comical to me. I literally couldn't get the belt unbuckled. Um, and the next day when I went to pick it up after I got out of the hospital, the guy at the wrecking yard goes, Hey, I'm sorry for what? And he goes, somebody must've died. I go, no, it was me. And he's like, bullshit. I'm like, no, I was the one driving. And then there was the, cause I went to the store to grab more beer. It was in the trunk. I made sure I took that. That was where it was like, wow. Wow. Yeah. I can see that being a, being a wake up call. That's pretty, pretty alarming. Yeah. What about yourself? You know, it took some scary experiences for me too. Um, I, you know, as I kind of got into my late twenties, early thirties, and saw a lot of peers putting excessive alcohol use kind of behind them, the opposite was happening for me. Instead of having just one night blackouts, I was having multi-day binges over the course of a long weekend or a vacation. And then starting to experience uh, alcohol withdrawal symptoms on the back end of those. Um, so both physical symptoms uh, like nausea and hot flashes and chills, and then mental health symptoms um, that I would call panic attacks, like the worst anxiety, heart beating out of your chest uh, type experiences. And, um, you know, it, to the point that I was kind of having auditory hallucinations and kind mm. of quote unquote, remembering things that hadn't actually happened, kind of manifestations of that anxiety. And on a few occasions needing um, either needing emergency care, either for like 
falling down a flight of stairs, or in one case, the the more psychiatric um, symptoms. Um, and it, it, you know, it it just kind of woke me up to this the the reality that I was headed towards you know death or serious injury if I kind of kept at it in that sort of more serious heavier quantity consumed uh pattern of alcohol misuse wow wow yeah and i'm sure that lands with so many people that that can relate to that point i mean i do remember for me it was more of a visual hallucination i think you know i really started to notice that some things came to fruition then after like a do- my doctor now goes oh yeah you're hype you have hypervigilance it's like what what the hell is that it's like no 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 you you get some point and some things happen and it turned it on and you know it's like people you look like you're tired i'm like i never sleep while the dog was making noise you know 30 feet away um it's, it's i've been told that too obviously we have some some things in common and uh you know no matter what the uh with different severity i think it you know is a fairly common theme among those of us who turn to alcohol to soothe anxiety that sense of hyper vigilance and like you know i remember the kind of some of the specific auditory hallucinations i had you know um were it was it, it go it almost ties back to those very first um social anxieties that i that drinking helped with i was kind of um, hearing, um, people I knew talking about what I'd done the night before when I was drunk, you know, hallucinating that. Um, and so, you know, there, there is definitely a theme there of, um, being overly concerned with what others think of one using alcohol to dim that in the moment, but then in this kind of horrible irony that from like a Russian novel or something, having the alcohol come back and bring those very fears that you were trying to tamp down uh, to the fore, even when not grounded in reality. Yeah, I think it makes some of Stephen King's writing make more sense, especially when you can examine when he was in his addiction, right? You're like, oh, yeah, that's some that's some stuff that popped into my brain like that. <laughs> yeah, I have not read a lot of his books or and, and did not know that that aspect of his uh, his history, but that's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. And it's weird. I mean, I don't know if you've been around others too. For instance, I worked in radio for 20 years, was around a lot of rock musicians and stuff like that. And and the ingrain within the culture and let alone knowing some of those people when we both were using substances to now where it's like, it took me forever to think I couldn't be creative without this. And it's that real attachment to it's such a part in our minds or the addict's mind that it's such a part of our identity and being yeah i think i think that's so dead on jason you know we we both talked a little bit about kind of maybe some of the very very inner psychology that made us susceptible to alcohol uh misuse uh but i don't think there's any doubt that environment and the way that we think about ourselves in relation to environment plays a role too i went to schools um, worked in companies where alcohol was baked into the social life and the cues were drink. And then you do that and more of your social life becomes oriented around alcohol and more of your friends are misusing alcohol and it becomes harder and harder to imagine alternate reality. You know, I'm a big advocate of the option of medication um, to drink less or to quit because it was so helpful to me. But the truth is, even once I got a prescription, 
it sat on a shelf in my bathroom for a month. And that wasn't because I was, you know, afraid of side effects or anything like that. It was because I didn't know if I was going to be able to have fun, do the things that used to be enjoyable for me, spend time with the people I wanted to spend time with. If I wasn't drinking excessively, it was hard to picture. Yeah. Well, and and I think you bring up such a valid point, Jonathan, that like it, our baseline shifts, you know, when, when, when we might first drink and then we're around people like, whoa, that person, I, you know, I had two beers. I'm fine. That person's like a 12 pack in what the heck. But then when you get around the crowd that the 12 pack is the norm, well, now it's your norm too. And so it's, it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard to detach to think that there's any other kind of anything like even when i've had people that are sober curious and like i you know i don't know if i have a problem i do well go hang out with people where there's no alcohol involved which where i live very rural kind of area good luck it's pretty hard <laughs> like i've been trying to work with a couple of charities to see if i can get something here for sober adult adventures you know with yosemite's mm -hmm. in our backyard and you know, we're in a beautiful area. So what, what can we offer to people to show them that alternative? And it, it's hard. I mean, you here you drive every second billboard. It's some sort of beer or booze or whatever it is. Totally. It's so, it's so normalized and finding those like exceptions that prove that it's not um, inevitable to drink excessively are, are so helpful. I'm particularly grateful to a few long-term friends of mine who, uh, really don't drink at all or don't drink heavily. And, um, you know, of course I probably along the way lost a lot of friends who fit that, fit that profile, but even just those one or two examples and just kind of seeing how they could have fun. They were happy. Um, you know, if I focused on them, you know, were, were instructive. And I do feel this is, you know, maybe not equally in every part of the country, but I do think we are making progress in having more intentionally sober uh, environments beyond just the recovery meeting. Um, here in New York, um, you know, there are multiple uh, sober bars um, where you can get a thoughtful adult cocktail that doesn't have any alcohol in it. Um, and uh, kind of, you know, it, it sounds a little funny, but only because uh, we're so we're so acculturated to alcohol being integral to socializing. Yeah. Well, and, and hey, I'm a fan of the mocktail. I enjoy it. Like it doesn't trigger me at all. It doesn't leave me any you know, non-alcoholic beer or whatever. I'm sorry. I still enjoy the taste of whatever kind of beer with a good steak. You know. But uh, <laughs> you know. yeah, I think there 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 there's no wrong answer there. There are of course folks who you know, find that not to be helpful to their, their recovery as you're, as you're alluding to. Yeah. Um, but I, I think we do better when we offer some expansiveness in terms of what recovery uh, means. Um, so maybe there is a, a role for an Odules um, <laughs> in recovery. And um, I consider myself a person in recovery, even though I am not sober full-time. Um, mm -hmm. I, my goal kind of from the beginning um, has been to have control over alcohol rather than mm. vice versa. And, you know, specifically to never drink to the point where I'm in danger of blacking out. Cause that's what I associated with all of the bad experiences we were, we were talking about. 
It's not to say sobriety isn't a fantastic goal. Uh, probably the healthiest level of alcohol consumption for any of us is zero. I think the, yeah. the evidence is pretty clear on that. Uh, but if you know more options um, allow more people to participate in a recovery journey of some sort, I think that all in all is going to be um, to the, the benefit of those individuals and to our, our community's health as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I want to dig into or health here in a bit, but um, so what medication did you shelf for a month? <laughs> yeah, it's called naltrexone, which okay. is the recommended frontline medication for the treatment of alcohol use disorder. The way that it works is it cools off uh, the pleasure and reward pathways that alcohol can activate, making it easier to have fewer drinks if you are drinking and by reducing cravings to have fewer days drinking, maybe quit drinking entirely. And so it was a really great fit for my goals and my main problem with alcohol, which was somewhere around that third or fourth drink, kind of losing control and feeling like a runaway train was leaving the station. It got a lot easier to stretch that second drink out over an hour hmm. and not be so interested in that third drink. Yeah, I've, I've I've heard that from a few people that it it, it almost just yeah none of the you know, I forget all the chemicals that are released I don't remember if it's dopamine oxytocin ser serotonin or endorphins which one are up there that alcohol really activates but it just when you have that you, like your brain's going yeah that thing that used to happen with this it's not happening and you're just kind of huh okay it, it is very surprising yeah the the science of it is that it, this medication binds to an opioid receptor and mm -hmm. so blocks some of the opioids like endorphins that our body releases um, when we're drinking. And that's kind of the interruption mechanism. But I think what's probably more important to any of us is kind of the feeling and the effect. And what finally got me over the hump of like taking that medication off the shelf was kind of approaching it the way that you described, which was not like oh, this is all or nothing. This either works or it doesn't. And I'm screwed if it doesn't. It was more kind of curious, open-minded, almost meditative in a sense of being like, I'm going to, you know, take this medication, have a beer, see what happens. Um, maybe it changes the experience, which would be great. Worst case scenario, I'm no worse off than I was yesterday. <laughs> right. Uh, what did you find? Uh, for, I had really great results. And you know, it's important to say that as with any medication, the results vary. Um, but I kind of had that um, cooling off of, of reward, lack of euphoria, lack of drive for the next and the next and the next faster and faster, right from the first time um, hmm. that I took the medication. And then over you know, several months of taking the medication and pairing it with a mindful plan to drink less. So a clear bright line goal, no blackouts, strategies to achieve that goal, not just taking the medication, but also eating something uh, before having a second drink, knocking out shots, being okay, going home and going to sleep at 10 o'clock, if that's how I felt. Um, through a combination of the medication and those sorts of tips, tricks, strategies, it was able to achieve my goal of, of um, you know, drinking within much more moderate limits and feeling like I had control back. 
Have you dug into the archives of past Knocking Doors Down podcast episodes? The Knocking Doors Down podcast archive is available to you for free. Check it out. Here's a snippet from when Charlie Sheen was on the podcast. AA is not the best place for um, for, <laughs> for a famous atheist. Um, <laughs> just, I kept looking for that fucking chapter. What, you know? So, yeah, um... But it's not a one-size-fits-all, sure, you know? Yeah. It's, like, it's like saying that we all think the same, like our brains are built the same. They're just not. Right. Yeah. There's, there's such uniqueness involved. Check out this episode and so many more in the Knocking Doors Down archive. So please hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. If it's Apple Podcast, subscribe, leave a rating and a review. And on Spotify, please leave a five-star rating for Knocking Doors Down. And share with somebody else that you know will get value out of the Knocking Doors Down podcast. When you talk, I wonder if that was something that I even knew was available, what my approach would be. Now, I, you know, it's like people ask me, like, give me one reason uh, not to drink today. I'm like, I don't have any reason to drink. So I just, mm-hmm. I'm just, that's where I'm at now with life. So like, hey, I'm good. And I seem to carry a little more weight by telling people, no, I'm completely abstinent of everything, uh, you know, other than necessary prescription medication that I got to take to make sure that I have a little longevity of life. And even that the doctor's like, yeah, you could probably come off of it. Um, so, but I think it's just a really good option to put out there for, for people that it's like, Hey, they're recovery is changing. Look, our world is evolving. I mean, come on with, with, with fentanyl taking out so many people and we're going to hit an all time, uh, overdose death rate. I guarantee it this year compared to the last one with all these things that we have out there that aren't working. Like I'm open for people trying anything. Now the, 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 the diehard guy in me, do I, do I, would I love to see everybody be able to achieve abstinence? Yes, I would, but it's also not my place to sit and judge. I mean, I don't agree with it. I got a buddy that he's still on Suboxone. I was like, he should taper off that shit, but it's not my it's not my call. I think that's a really balanced um perspective. You know, as I said, I think sobriety is a fantastic goal and it's the goal that about 30 or 40% of the people who are members at Or Health mm-hmm. are pursuing. Um but there's also a huge group of people who aren't willing to commit to sobriety or aren't willing at this moment. Um, to commit to sobriety. And obviously that's the the group I'm in. And yet many of us could benefit from drinking a hell of a lot less. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, I too am in favor of putting as many options, as many evidence-based options yeah. um, in front of people as we can. Um, medication is one of those, a historically underutilized uh, one of those. Uh, but so is working with a coach, counselor, a therapist um, one-on-one. So is a mutual support group, Alcoholics Anonymous, but also groups like Moderation Management and Smart Recovery that are geared towards different goals or different uh, sets of tools uh, relative to AA. And the great thing is that virtually everything on that menu is complementary and compatible rather than competitive, which I think gives individuals uh, a lot of freedom to mix and match and build their recovery toolkit that kind of fits who they are, 
what their goals are, what's worked for them in the past in solving difficult problems. And that's kind of the bigger project that I hope we're part of at Or Health is kind of making the medication piece of that toolkit a little bit easier to get access to. Yeah. No, I'm glad you bring that. And you are right. It's We can't sit and Unfortunately, I don't know how much you, you're involved with the recovery community. I've been at some events and it's like, are you guys competing for bodies or are you competing to help change lives? Because it feels like bodies, not the changing life parts. And I think we all we all run the risk of of falling into um that trap and sure. you know, the the trap of thinking that whatever worked for us is going to work for every single one of the tens of millions of people who are struggling with addiction to alcohol or other drugs. Um, I really hope (laughs) that we at OR and I personally stay a bit more humble than that, uh, just as you obviously had in kind of have in expressing your kind of openness to different sorts of goals and different sorts of tools. Yeah, and I really think th- thank you for that. I appreciate that, and and right back at you and and the whole team at Or Health. Um, you know, because for me, I had to undig some things, and and we didn't really touch on. But you know, my I had a big T, went through molestation, and I was exposed to hardcore pornography at an early age. So once I got the alcohol out of the way, so I was able to identify. Whoa, this is the first thing I used to change my emotional state and my nervous system. Uh, that's a big problem. I got to go do that work. So I'm going to jump on some sex and love addiction meetings or whatever it is. But, you know, I have people that have gotten sober and even though they might still view that type of stuff or whatever it is, it's like, like, hey, I can tell you what it does to the brain. Here's what science says. Here's how, you know, data-driven stuff shows how it affects relationships. But yeah, I'm, I'm not your parent telling you how to conduct your life. Like you're going to have to make that decision. So I think as many different pathways as we just openly give people, the better off it's going to be. And like you said, society, it's going to be better off. So it's, there seems to be something in that ability. And it sounds like you got it too. Like, wow, I'm making an empowering choice for me. And And there's a lot to be said when we can recognize that in ourselves. I think that's true. Um, and, you know, appreciate your sharing a little bit of your story. Those are some pretty serious things to deal with. So um, congratulations on the the progress and the, the, the good that you've um, turned those to. Thank you. Um, I do think there's something very empowering about people choosing uh, their own path. Um, one of the very first um, psychiatrists that I worked with professionally, um, you know, said, you know, Jonathan, when it comes to these big, hard behavioral health challenges, the client or the patient, whatever you want to call them, the person um, is going to do somewhere between 50 and 99% of the change work. So we who are in the helping business should have some humility. Uh, We should ask them, what are your goals? Uh, What tools would you be interested in using? And that doesn't mean that those of us in the helping business don't have an important role to play in suggesting evidence-based options, in providing advice based on expertise and experience. But I really do think it has to be tailored 
to the individual in front of us so that they can assert their agency, rally their resources, their capabilities, even if they come out of traumatic experiences and marshal those towards goals that that make sense to them. Yeah. No, I I concur. You've put you put it really well. So that prompts me then where with you and your process where you're like, hmm, I access this medication. It's working for me. And then you found out mm, maybe others weren't because I, I wasn't aware of it when I sought sobriety. And I'm still learning more about, you know, medication assisted treatment. Um that is a light bulb went on like, huh. I wonder how I can make this accessible to other people. That's exactly right. Um, Okay. Yeah. It was a bit of a revelation to me in that I had sought treatment in a lot of places and previously heard you need to stop drinking and start going to meetings and not heard about medication. And on top of that, I'd worked in healthcare my entire career, Um, not so distant from some of these issues. And I hadn't heard about medication assisted treatment for alcohol use disorder in those contexts either. And so it didn't take too much um, research to confirm that those weren't just anecdotal impressions, that less than 3% of people who meet the criteria for alcohol use disorder are prescribed a medication that can help them drink less or quit that there's widespread agreement among the leading experts in our country that naltrexone and other forms of MAT should be a frontline treatment for alcohol use disorder. And despite these medications being around 30, 40 years at this point, um, they're just underutilized with simple awareness being the main barrier. And so that you know did seem like an opportunity to kind of do well by doing good um, to kind of start to build a business whose mission is to increase access to those those medications using telehealth to make getting a treatment plan and a prescription if appropriate and home delivery uh, private and convenient, which is so important to so many of our members. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's it kind of takes me loops me back to the beginning of hey recovery out loud, but even, you know, like, uh, I think the people that maybe gave me a bit of a hard time were worried that I wasn't going to protect their anonymity. And I think it's so great that y- you take that into such consideration. I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about the Hippocratic Oath and, hey, patient deserves their privacy of their matters. So that's a wonderful thing that that's, that's, you know, was really built in and thought into this process for you folks there. It is a cornerstone of our approach, and it's a way, it's something that kind of the explosion of telehealth utilization over the last uh, three years um, can be helpful with. You know, I think in particular of a, a member who told me that she lived in a very rural community and knew each of the doctors and the one pharmacist in her community personally and really didn't want to talk to them about this problem. And so was happy that we could connect her with a doctor licensed in her state and ship the medication to her discreetly um, in a you know white white bubble mailer, and that she could kind of get started in a way that felt safe to her. Yeah, well, which is so important again, and I think a lot of it goes back to maybe folks like myself. One of those big T's. Well, 
Sometimes that's going to be the hard, maybe the hardest thing for you is opening up because you were taking advantage in that area. So that's that's a really uh, that touches me that you, that that's there. Uh, uh, kudos to you all. Seriously, that's um, yeah. People just need that help. Let me ask you what. Uh, let's say I became a, a member. What what's kind of the initial process? The maybe the intake, obviously, because you said it, you said a very important thing. If cho- I forget your wording, but if it's chosen to prescribe you something, so it's not like, hey, you get on and hi, cool, all right, you drink, great, send you the, you know, there's a process here. Yeah, we we are providing you know bona fide healthcare. Um, the way it um, all starts is at orhealth.com. Um, folks do three things: they fill out a some questions about their alcohol use and history some general medical history, including any other prescription or non-prescription drugs that they're using. And then they verify their identity by uploading something like a driver's license. That all gets fed into a virtual consultation with a doctor or nurse practitioner. And that doctor or nurse practitioner puts together a treatment plan, often includes recommendations of uh, psychosocial support uh, that may be available, um, some of the options we talked about. And then when medically appropriate, and it often is because naltrexone is a recommended frontline drug, is quite safe, um, has a great track record, um, when it's appropriate, a prescription. And then at the member's option, um, they, they can get that prescription filled through one of our partner pharmacies if they so choose, which means it can kind of be shipped right to their door, no awkward pharmacy visits, and uh, they they know they'll, they'll get it reliably and people can get started on um, this medication as kind of a simple step um, or an additional tool in their recovery toolkit, usually within a few days of their their first visit to orhealth.com. Yeah, I love it. Hey, Jonathan, you're kind of like, well, God, what was it, the men's warehouse or something back in the day, the soup place? You know, I'm not just the owner, I'm a client. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is that is true. <laughs> um, yeah, I am. Um, you know, still take uh, naltrexone every day. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a medication that you have to be on your whole life. Um, you know, our experts do recommend sticking with it for the better part of a year if it's helping to kind of give your brain some time to rewire, your body to reset, room to build healthy habits, time to maybe address some of those underlying mental health challenges or traumas that have contributed to excessive alcohol use. And then it's a very individualized um, decision but I've uh, I've found it helpful um, to kind of keep in my recovery toolkit for the for the long run, and it is considered safe to continue indefinitely. So yes, I am still a I am still a customer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and are there like additional services offered, or let's say access points, for instance, like you had mentioned, if it was you know mental health or a recovery group or whatever it is, uh, do you kind of all in one help? at least connect people to those those uh, different services? We're not trying to be all things to all people uh, at this point. Um, the main things that we wrap around the medication are two. One is people can um, have a follow-up virtual consultation with their care team at any point. So side effects, dosage changes, they're starting a new medication and want to make sure it's safe to combine with naltrexone uh, and so on. Uh, the second is we do maintain a private um, members community where people can get peer support, tips, tricks, 
et cetera, from others who are using this medication, um, which can be hard to find in the world at large since awareness is, is so low. And then beyond that, we, we do do what, what you were saying, which is um, provide, try to provide people access to um, navig navigate to resources, uh, both virtual and brick and mortar um, in their communities. Awesome. I love it. Uh, if uh, people want to find out more about uh, Or Health, uh, easiest way, just orhealth.com. Exactly. Orhealth.com. One option there is to check out our resource library. Another is to click on our story. And if they so wish, they can book 15 minutes to chat with me, just like just like we're doing today. Right on. I love it. Well, uh, let's switch gears now. Let's have some fun, some random questions. What do you think? I hope I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Uh, dinner with any one person, living or not, who would it be and why? <laughs> He's stumped, ladies and I, gentlemen. I think it's one I get to do, but not as frequently as I'd like. Um, probably, probably my parents, um, you know, recognizing um, I don't have that many more years. Um, with them and uh you know it takes probably the first 25 or so to realize that they're real people in addition to um, being your parents <laughs> so uh if i could have any dinner with anyone tonight it would be them oh i love it that's great and i can and that resonates with me as well uh what's something people would be surprised to learn about you maybe a interesting trait hobby uh interest probably my my weirdest attribute is that i cannot hear the beat in a song um <laughs> so i've discovered over the years that this is i'm not unique there are others who have this uh particular condition um but uh it's rare i'm not even, i'm not even sure there's a technical term for it if any of your listeners know please <laughs> please get in touch i would like i would like to know it hasn't helped me back too much but it is weird yeah, I don't know. I've had friend. I have a friend. He he definitely claps on the wrong beat and off that beat at, at that. So, yeah, I've stopped attempting to clap along. Uh, <laughs> rarely goes well. <laughs> Just the guy at the concert goes. Hey, uh, go. Never mind. I'm not. Gonna <laughs> uh, pet peeves. Stuff that irks you. Maybe a couple of things. Um, well. As the child of an English teacher, uh, kind of a bit of a of a um, bit particular about grammar. So probably my my pet peeve is um, confusing I E and E G, which do not mean the same thing. <laughs> no, hey, I'm a dyslexic guy. I would have driven you nuts. So I, I'm still <laughs> learning all the I'm, time. I'm glad we're connecting uh, uh, via via audio. Right, right. Oh uh, heck. Um, Let's see. What's another fun one? What's like your song, like your go-to song? Almost think of it like if you were a prize fighter, the song that you would come out to the ring to. <laughs> um, I think, I think it's, it's gotta be, um, uh, living Oak by, by Jason Isbell. Um, which if you, um, listen to the lyrics is um probably resonant with a number of folks who've recovered from substance misuse as he has um and it um is so 
honest, raw, and introspective about um, trying to make sense of the person that you've grown into and wondering um, if those around you miss the person you were when you were misusing substances. Mm. So it's a little dark, um, no. but um, it just the it, it strikes a chord. Yeah. I'm going to look that up. I've not heard that song. And um, what you said right there, I that was that was me. And I did have people that were that way, like, well, I don't want you to drink anymore, but I'd like you to be that, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, but that's about you. That's not about loving me. That's about you. Like, that's you being a selfish prick. I, there's no other way to call it. I'm sitting here killing myself with a substance and you want me to be that guy. But just don't, you know. Yeah. Mm -mm. No. Wow. Gosh. Yeah, you got to check it out. Getting too reflective here thinking about that one. Uh, anyway. I guess right. this was supposed to be the fun section. I, 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 <laughs> it is. We're, we're laughing. We're joking. Um, uh, favorite sport. Uh, favorite to play is golf. Favorite to watch is football. I'm a Bills fan, so I guess I still I still like to torture myself in some ways. <laughs> so you are so you were born in New York, then. If you're a Bills fan, you usually don't hear too many people that weren't <laughs> somehow New York rooted be a Bills fan. It is improbable. My my parents met in Buffalo. I was born in California because mm. a few years in Buffalo was enough for them to see get as far away as possible, um, weather wise and geographically. But uh, somehow I inherited the uh, the Bills fan uh, curse or blessing, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Well, hey, if this helps you, uh, I'm not a huge football fan, but people always ask my team, and I was very close to a, a PE teacher at my high school really became a mentor and we kept in touch till his passing but he was a Raiders fan so it's kind of like yeah I'm a Raiders fan but I know <laughs> what I'm expecting out of this you know uh, so <laughs> it's all good hey Jonathan this has been a real pleasure it's really glad to make your acquaintance and um, thank you for what you do and the whole team again at Or Health and really creating this place to offer more accessibility for uh, varying pathways for people to recovery. Well, thank you so much for having me and for using your platform, Jason, to help spread the word. It was a real pleasure. Absolutely. The floor is yours. If anything you'd like to lend to those that are struggling or maybe a loved one of someone struggling. Sure. Three simple things. Recovery is possible. Jason and I are examples of that. Two, options for recovery are more numerous and more varied than you may have been exposed to. So it pays to do a little research. You don't have to become an encyclopedia, but check out a few options and trust your gut on which might be a good fit for you. And then lastly, it's never too early or too late to start getting better. You don't have to wait for rock bottom. But on the other side of that coin, no matter how dark and difficult things feel today, tomorrow can still be a brighter future. Remember, no outside solutions to inside problems. Keep knocking doors down. <laughs>